Well, we, we are in Luke 1 today, and uh, we, we're going to be walking through the story here in Luke chapter 1. One of the, we all have family traditions, and we all have those, uh, you, you have them in your family. My kids think that one of our family traditions is eating in gas stations on Christmas Day, because that's what, it's, it, they exaggerate it, but we've done that many times because we're often traveling, and that's the only place it's open. I will say some of the gas stations in Texas, they have some really nice restaurants, but uh, they're, they're big and barbecue and Mexican food, so it's not totally bad. Um, but what, we have traditions in our family, as you do. One of the, the newer traditions, if you can call something newer a tradition, uh, but with Brooks' family, and I've, I think I've shared this before, but we, we, we have these, this very unorthodox and obnoxious wrapping of presents. Uh, not all of us, but some of us. Uh, this is something I think I'm guilty of starting several years ago, and my mother-in-law holds it against me to this day. Um, but, my, but now my brothers-in-law and I, we, we have this tradition of wrapping each other's gifts in very weird and tacky ways. And, and so power tools, duct tape, ice, jello, uh, mud, lumber, shrink wrap, these are all things that have been involved in the process of wrapping uh, our gifts and so it's getting more and more challenging I'm realizing even this year I'm thinking what am I going to do this year but trying to trying to think of new and creative ways and not use the same ones but it started out as a way to wrap a gift in such a way that concealed the contents so they couldn't guess what was inside you know it's kind of the old you have a small gift but you wrap it in a really big box or you you know throw Legos in there so if they shake it it sounds that kind of thing that's what started now it's just become a competition to see who can come up with the most bizarre way of packaging uh, this present. Um, we'll, we'll take that, but, but what we see in Luke 1, and, and as we come to the text, the, the story of, of, of Christmas, the story and the meaning of Christmas is often packaged in ways that, that conceal the true contents. And I'm not about to launch into a rant against the you know, secularization of Christmas or something like that, the takeover of Christmas. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about as Christians in churches. We can, we can wrap Christmas in the, in the very pretty paper of sentimentality and, and nice shiny rib, ribbons and bows of, of, of uh, you know, traditions and, and moralism and that kind of thing. And so, so the, the packaging of the, of the Christmas story that we often put on it, it makes it look cute and tame and uh, small. But in reality, the, the real meaning of Christmas is big, and it's ugly, and it's glorious. And so, it's, it's so, so often the way Christmas is talked about in churches isn't really much different from the way that it shows up in the stories and plays and movies that, that are around Christmas. And so the traditional ones, Christmas Carol and Miracle on 34th Street and The Grinch Who Stole Christmas and Charlie Brown... I mean, they, they hint at the true Christmas, Christmas story, but they miss the mark. They, they say things like, change, be better, uh, repent of your selfish materialism, turn away from your cynicism and bitterness, uh, be nicer, be more generous, be happy. I mean, those are kind of the messages that are communicated in these popular uh, films and stories. But these, again, they are all woefully incomplete, and they, and they ultimately miss the mark. Christmas is not about becoming a better you, a better person. 
It's not about improving ourselves. It's not about us changing ourselves to become more and more like God. It's about God humbling Himself to come and become like us and save us. That's the, that's the, that's the true essence of it. So this week and next, we're, we're going to unwrap Christmas and, and try to pull away some of that so that we can see it in its beautiful simplicity. Uh, this Christmas, simply Christmas is kind of the, the title of this week and next week, just looking in Luke chapters 1 and 2. And so we're, we're just looking at the unadorned story of Christ's birth in Luke's Gospel account. And so after being in First and Second Peter for so long, I think, as I said a couple weeks ago, we're due some story. We're due some narrative. And, and, and I've just thoroughly enjoyed being in this here. So this morning in particular, there, there is no detailed outline. If you don't want to take notes and you just want to open your Bible, follow along, listen, this would be a great Sunday to do that. I know some of you can't help it, and that's okay. So just good luck taking notes. And, and we will, but we're going to move quickly through a lot of, a lot of verses today. 80 verses, basically, is what we'll cover, uh, this morning. And so, the, the whole section is about Jesus. We're going to see other characters. We're, we're, because what? Christmas is about Jesus. And so, if we're going to unwrap what the story is really about, we're going to find Christ. And so, we have these accounts in this text of some people. There's names and people that are battling to believe God and His Word. But, but this isn't ultimately about Zechariah or Elizabeth or Mary or John or Joseph. It's not about their faith. It's about the object of their faith. It, it's, it's about Christ. And so we're going to, again, cover a lot of ground, but we're going to see Him. There, there are many similarities, many differences between kind of the, the two uh, main characters apart from Jesus would be Zechariah and Mary. But their stories are side by side in this chapter to show the supremacy of Mary's Son, Jesus. And so we want to see Him in, in His glory and grace today. And so let's jump right into this incredible true story. We're going to just go ahead and jump in verse 5. The first four verses, Luke's explaining who He is, why He's writing. But jump into verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So we meet an ordinary man with a very common name in that day, Zechariah. His name means the Lord remembers. And so he's a common priest. There were about eighteen to 20,000 priests in Israel at this time. And so he's one of those priests of the Abijah division. There were 24 divisions. This is the eighth of those divisions. So nothing very extraordinary there. This ordinary priest married up. This is something Zechariah and I have in common here. And so he marries Elizabeth. Uh, her name means God is my oath. And, and she's, the, she's though the daughter of a priest. Not just any priestly line, but from the daughters of Aaron, the text says, which is a great line to be from. And so, but all in all, there's really nothing spectacular about uh, Zechariah's pedigree. He's just some certain priest from the hill country. He's kind of this country hillbilly priest. Not famous. Not a mover and shaker in Israel. Not terribly important. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're exceptionally unexceptional. But they are godly. And so you see in verse 6, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. 
So it doesn't mean they're perfect. It just means they're, they're sincerely and authentically righteous before God. They love God. They worship God. They seek to obey God. And they believe God. They trust Him. And they're looking for His promises to be fulfilled. So that's what characterizes Him. But there's a problem. And the problem, and there's, a, there's this heavy burden of sorrow that Zechariah and Elizabeth carry. They're childless. So verse 7, they, but they had no child. And, and, and that little adversative there, but, here, here, they're righteous, they're walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but, and you think, how could this be? But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Advanced in years, I know seems relative to us, but it would have been at least 60 in their 60s, probably in their 70s, possibly 80s. And so they're getting up there. And, but this is, listen, this was not just some personal heartache for Elizabeth and Zechariah where we shed a little tear because they're not able to have a baby. That's not it. They, they were not pitied by their friends and family members and neighbors and fellow worshipers at the synagogue, at the, at the temple. That's not it. They were probably slandered, ridiculed, gossiped about. Most Jews believe that if God cursed you, He would make you barren, unable to have children. And, and that's what that little adversity in verse 7 is, is kind of highlighting here. And so at this stage of life, though, also, there, there's really no hope of reversal. She's beyond childbearing years. This is... There's really no potential of this changing. And yet, God's at work. He's up to something. God is always up to more than we recognize. He's always doing more than we see. And so is the case here. He's, he, he is. He, he's, he uses simple, ordinary people with their small and large difficulties. People like us in His grand drama of redemption. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're not, they're not handpicked because they're so wonderful. It's God's sovereign grace. He chose them. And so God, but this is an encouragement to us. God, God uses our normal and, and sometimes painful problems uh, for His glory. Your difficult marriage to an unbelieving spouse. Your chronic pain. Your disease. Your flu. You're, you're, you're not making the team, young people. Your, your betrayal by a close friend. Your, your ostracism by your family. I mean, he, he uses these things. It's just part of his story. It's not because of some intrinsic value in you. It's Christ in you. It, 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 but your life, it fits into God's big meta-narrative. His drama of redemption. And so, well, all right, back to the story. So if everything, if everything about Zechariah's, Zechariah's life has been normal except the childlessness up to this point and kind of boring, that's about to radically change. So there were eighteen to 20,000 priests in Israel, but there was only one temple. And so they rotated through this schedule as each division served in the temple two times a year. And so it's his turn. It's his turn for his division. So verse 8, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty. So he travels with those in his division to the temple for his time of service there. And so their, what was their service in the temple? Butchering, basically. I mean, being a priest was being a butcher. They were sacrificing animals, you know, up to their elbows and blood. And it's, it's, it's ugly work, but this is all day long, sacrificing. And so this is, 
Again, this is very common for a priest. All the priests traveled. They all did their time in, at the temple. That's very common. The uncommon, uncommon part comes in the next verse. Verse 9. Verse nine. So according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now it's hard to imagine, because this is it's just such a different world from what we live in, but it's hard to imagine what a thrill this was for Zechariah. I mean, this is, a, this is now a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him. To, to enter into the holy place of the temple, to, to burn incense, offer incense to God on behalf of the people. This is huge. Zechariah would be able to go where he had never gone before. He, to, to, to see what he had never put his eyes on before. To be closer to the Holy of Holies, that innermost part of the temple where God's presence was manifest. To, to be closer to the Holy of Holies than he had ever been before. To be inches or just a few feet away. And, and this is the, that, the Holy of Holies, that part of the temple where the high priest only goes in one time a year. And so he's going to be right there. So you can just imagine the, the moment for Zechariah. The anticipation. The, 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 just think of the night before. The fear, the excitement, the, the uh, trepidation, the sleeplessness. As he's anticipating what's about to happen. And so as time comes, probably during the evening gathering. Um, and so he, what, what would he do? He would go, he would gather coals off of the... So burning coals off of the bronze altar where sacrifices were being made, he would, and he would he would put those uh, in a, in this golden bowl. He'd have these tongs that he would use to get the coals and put them in this golden bowl, and then he would carry those inside of the holy place. And then when and when he crossed that threshold into the holy place, he would be going where he again had never been before, and few had. And and he would go to the far end of the holy place and find. The, the golden altar of incense is what it was called. And so it's right in front of the curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. So he's going all the way into the holy place. And, and there he would dump those coals and they would be spread around with, with that utensil. And then he would put incense on top of those burning coals so there'd be this huge column of smoke that would rise out of the holy place and would, and would go over the temple and really over the whole city and, and throughout, but, but around that temple area. And, that, and so this ascending cloud of incense, of fragrance, it was symbolic of, of the prayers of God's people rising to Him. That's what this was showing and, and, and demonstrating. And so prayers for salvation, prayers for deliverance, longing for Messiah. This is what the prayers are that are happening outside as He's offering this in, or burning this incense and this cloud's rising. And so while the incense is offered... The people are gathered in the courts outside praying to the Lord. Verse 10, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So that's it. That's his job. He takes coals, takes them in there, lays them out, puts incense on, smoke rises, he leaves. He, do, he does that, then he's out of there. That, it wouldn't take long. It shouldn't take long. It better not take long. And so there's all kinds of fear associated with being in the holy place, being that close to the holy of holies. And so if the priest messed up or dishonored God in some way, that was a very dangerous place to be. 
And so during this short process, Luke says in a very understated way, look at verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. What? That, that, that doesn't happen. This is not just kind of unusual, huh? No, no, this is absolutely unheard of. And so there hasn't been a visit from one of God's angelic messengers now for centuries. Nobody that's living and, and, and for multiple generations has, has had any kind of visitation from one of God's messengers. But now, the silence has been broken. It's been 500 years since there was a vision by an angel to a different Zechariah. It's been 400 years since a prophet, since God raised up a prophet to speak for him. 400 years. It's been 800 years since any kind of miracle took place. And right there in front of ordinary Zechariah, this country priest, is an angel of the Lord. And what is Zechariah's reaction? Wow! This is so cool! You know, can I get a selfie? Uh, you know, hashtag Gabe sighting, something like that. No! Look at verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him, or literally gripped him. His reaction here is normal and it's expected. This is what happens when people see angels. It's sheer terror and panic. This holy, glorious creature who, who has come right from the very presence of God is standing there in front of Zechariah. And whenever a perfectly holy visitor from the glory of heaven appears, terror is the appropriate response. This is not some kind of hallmark Christmas angel or something like that. This is this glorious creature. In the Old Testament, I mean, we see this throughout Scripture with angel appearances. It's, it's terror. And Manoah, who was Samson's dad in, in Judges chapter 13, we see he, he, they, have, they, they have this angelic visitor and, and when he realizes who it is, he says to his wife, we shall surely die. I mean, that's the, that's the response that people have. So the angel, he greets Zechariah with the, the standard angelic greeting, don't be afraid. Because everybody's afraid. Why, why didn't Zechariah need to be afraid? Because the angel wasn't there for, uh, he wasn't sent uh, from God for judgment, but for blessing. Look at verse 13. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And He will go before Him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so this old man and his old barren wife, they're going to have this extraordinary son. 
One, one whom Jesus would later say, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And so his birth, he's, he's going to bring joy to Zechariah. You better believe it, but not just to Zechariah. To many people. He says he will, he will have this wonderful evangelistic ministry turning people back to God. He will, he will be the promised forerunner to the Messiah, this prophet of God. He will have a powerful impact upon Israel. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even when He's in the womb. And so you have prophets of old who've talked about Messiah and who've preached about Messiah and who've promised the Messiah is coming. But John would be the only one who would be able to say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's that one. And so notice, there's not even the slightest hint of uncertainty in Gabriel's words here. These things will take place. God's plans are not conditional upon anything. As we're going to see, not upon Zechariah's faith. Listen, brothers and sisters, I know I, know I look around at those of you that are here and, and those that are sick now and maybe listening later. I, I know the, the stuff that Many of you are walking through. And there's, an, there's encouragement here. We can stake our lives and our futures on the absolute certainty of God's revealed will. What God says will happen, will happen. God says, He takes care of the sparrows. He will take care of you. You, you will not be tempted beyond what you can handle. And, and there will always be a way of escape. He promises you this, and it's certain. God will hear you and answer you when you pray. He will forgive your sins if you confess them. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. If you lack wisdom, ask God, and He will give it to you. God is faithful, and He will strengthen you and, and, and protect you from the evil one. He will, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will work all things together for your good. His word will not return void. He will make all things new. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will come again. He will one day raise us with Christ. I mean, these are promises from God's word, and they are certain. And just as certain as this announcement is, to Zechariah. Again, God, God's sovereignty isn't conditioned upon anything in us. He is free. And He is mighty. And He is faithful to keep His promises. Well, this is some announcement that Zechariah has. I mean, it's already going to be the biggest day of Zechariah's life, but this just surpassed anything anybody could possibly imagine. And so, how is he going to respond to this angel's announcement? Wow! I'm overwhelmed. I, I can't wait to tell Elizabeth what happened. Look at verse 18. You see his response. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So he's... Struggling to believe. And, and that's evidenced by, we'll see, the, the angel's response. But his, his response to God's Word through Gabriel, it, it's not one of immediate faith. We, we see the angel's response, and it's appropriate. Verse 19, so Zechariah says, I am an old man, 
And it's like Gabriel just cuts him off. And, and look at verse 9. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I'm, I'm not just some shiny guy. I am Gabriel. I, 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 am, I am God's messenger. There are only two named angels that we have in Scripture. We have Michael, who's like the, you know, the tough guy that whenever there's a war, whenever there's a battle, he's the guy that shows up. And he, and he, he, he always wins. So he's, and then there's Gabriel who's, God, Gabriel, who's God's number one messenger. When there's some kind of mega message that has to be communicated, God sends Gabriel to do it. And, and, and so this, this message from Gabriel is a message from God Himself. So directly from the Lord. Angels don't act independently of God. So he's saying, I am Gabriel. And because of Zechariah's doubt though, Gabriel doles out God's discipline. He's struck mute and apparently deaf because people are making signs to him as well. We see in verse 62. Why? Verse 20. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And so Zechariah, he wanted a sign. How will, how will this take place? But instead, he becomes a sign. And so notice, his, his, his unbelief, it doesn't get in the way of God's plans. No, they will be fulfilled in their time, in their proper time. So that's not it. Alright, well the whole time this is going on, verse 21, the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. He should have been in and out by now. What happened? Is he okay? Is he dead? Why is it taking so long? So verse 22, he finally comes out, but he can't speak. He's supposed to come out, pronounce his blessing upon the people that are gathered in in the temple, but he's mute. Verse 22, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So something, I'm sure just in his eyes, they could say something happened in there. So they don't know what the vision is, they don't know what it communicated, but they know he's seen a vision. And he's able to communicate somehow with signs. Alright, verse 23, we have this kind of quiet ending to a spectacular week. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Now, I, again, my imagination, just try to imagine what that reunion was like with Elizabeth. After all that he's seen and experienced and what's happened, he is a changed man in more ways than just being mute. But how is he going to break this news to Elizabeth? So much news to break. Silent, scripture is silent about their reunion. We're not even told. But it simply says that he, that he went home and after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived. Again, another massive understatement. That's huge. This is miraculous. Elizabeth, barren old Elizabeth becomes pregnant. It's crazy. Verse 24, And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Well, then we have this scene change in the story. And so Luke here, he's weaving the story of, of John's miraculous conception with the birth and birth with the story of Jesus' miraculous conception and birth. And so Mary also gets a visitor from Gabriel. And this gives me an opportunity to take a drink of water. 
So verse 26. In the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, he's got another mission, sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. So just compare what we saw with Zechariah, now what we're going to see with Mary. Zechariah, it's in Judea. It's in Jerusalem, the capital. It's in the temple. It's beside the altar of incense, just on the other side of the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies. And so Zechariah's angelic visit happened in, in the very heart of Israel, the center of God's dealings with man. And so it, this is the place where God's glory and presence reside. If you would ever expect God to show up and, and give a message, that's where you would expect it to happen. But here, Gabriel visits Mary in Galilee, to the, to the north in the, in the hill country, in Nazareth, this small little Roman military outpost. This despised, disdained, backwater kind of town. Nathaniel expressed, in, in John one forty six, he expressed the common sentiment of the day, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, this is how Nazareth was viewed. So you just see this contrast here. Verse 27, so, so he was sent to, uh, to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So it's just some virgin named Mary betrothed to some man named Joseph. Very simple, plain description. The, the kicker is that he's of the house of David, which wasn't uncommon or unheard, unusual, but it, it is significant, obviously, to the story nonetheless. And so this, again, this radically different situation in, in life between Zechariah and Mary. Zechariah is male, he's a priest, he's advanced in years, he's married to the daughter of a priest. Mary is just some girl, teenager, virgin, betrothed to just some guy. Zechariah, he wanted and prayed for a child for decades. Mary... No thought of a child. Unwed virgin. Zechariah had been slandered. He and Elizabeth had been slandered for their childlessness. The angel's announcement then brings into the rumors and to the gossip. Mary, exact opposite. She would be slandered for having a child. She, she, the, the angel's announcement is what started the whole rumor mill for her. And all the accusations and all the slander. Verse 28, And he came to her and said, this is his announcement, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Favored one. This means she found favor, found grace in God's sight. The emphasis isn't on Mary's merit here. The emphasis is on God's sovereign and gracious choice of her. She found favor. And the Lord is with you. This promise, a promise that I don't question at all she clung to for the days and weeks and months to come. The Lord is with you. Verse 29, But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So she's rightly afraid at the angel's appearing. We'll see that in verse 30 by his response. But her initial response is is different from Zechariah's. And you look carefully at the text. So Zechariah, he's absolutely petrified and fear grips him just at the presence of the angel. Mary, she's greatly troubled or perplexed, that's kind of the meaning of this word, at the saying. 
the angel's unusual greeting. That's what she's perplexed by. And, and she kept pondering what kind of salutation this, this was. So she's not just surprised by who spoke to her, but, but what Gabriel said. And so she's, she's immediately trying to process what she's been told. So verse 30, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now that's amazing and unexpected in itself. But there's more. Oh, there is much more. Look at the text. And you shall call His name Jesus. He will be great and He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of His kingdom there will be no end. What do we see about this son? There there are five statements here. One, he will have the name Jesus. Means name means the Lord is salvation. Mary, your child will be your Savior. He will be Jesus. Second, he will be great. Now that's an understatement. I mean words words fail to describe the the incalculable greatness of Mary's child. He, he has been appointed as heir of all things. Through Him, God created the world. He, he reflects the very glory of God. He's the exact representation of His nature. He upholds all things by the word of His power. Yes, He is great. Third, He will be called the Son of the Most High. He is uniquely God's Son, the eternal begotten of the Father. To say that he's the, he's the Son of God is to say that He is God. And so your Son is, is going to be God. <coughs> and He will have the throne of David. He will be King, but not just a King, the King, the promised King. The, 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 he will fulfill the prophecy that there will be a Son of David who sits on the throne of Israel. And not only of Israel, but of the whole world. And He will reign as King forever. His kingdom will never, ever, ever, ever end. Now, again, if Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah was huge, I mean, his announcement to Mary is just it's gargantuan. I mean, it's just enormous. And, and so, again, you think about Zechariah. He has, he has history to fall back on. He can look back and say, remember Abraham and Sarah? We're a modern day version of this. I mean, he had been hoping and praying for a child. He had been hoping for a Messiah. But Mary here, she's never even considered the possibility of a child. Because she's, she's an unwed virgin. And so verse 34, this is, her, this is behind her response. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And Gabriel said to her, How will this be? Are you kidding me? You too? Do you know who's talking to you? I am Gabriel. You know, I'm sinned from the president. You're going to be mute like Zechariah. And that's not what he says. It sounds like Mary's asking the same question that Zechariah asked, but they're actually very different in meaning here and, and probably tone. They're, they're different questions. Zechariah questioned Gabriel out of unbelief. He, he wanted a sign for proof. Mary questioned Gabriel out of a lack of understanding. It's, Mary's not doubting the certainty of the angel's announcement. She's just trying to understand how. Zechariah wondered if this was even true, 
Mary's wondering, how, how will this be? How is it going to take place? I'm a virgin. How, how can I have a child? So verse 35, you see the angel's response is different. And the angel answers her question. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I mean, the angel's answer is basically, here's your answer, the Holy Spirit. The second person of the Trinity is, is, is going to be conceived by the work of the third person of the Trinity. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, that says a lot. I mean, one thing it says, you don't think the historicity of the, the, the birth narrative is important? Is a big deal? Like this, eh, you know, this is not, whether it actually happened in the way it's recorded, that's, that's up for grabs. No, this is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. This is why it's in our doctrinal statement. It's absolutely necessary that Jesus be born to a virgin for Him to be called the Son of God. That's like a little, little particle. Therefore, for that reason, he, uh, therefore the child will be born. The child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God because He's born to this virgin. Verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And so, Zechariah, he wanted a sign in unbelief uh, and he became one because God, of God's discipline. Mary doesn't ask for a sign, but she's given one. It's her Aunt Elizabeth's pregnancy in, in, in her old age. And so, again, notice Mary's not told that Elizabeth's child is going to be the forerunner to Jesus, to the Messiah. The sign is simply the miracle of Elizabeth's pregnancy in her, in her old age and in her barrenness. And so the, the sign gives clear evidence, verse 37, that nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. So how does Mary respond? Verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Alright, another scene change. We've got two more, two more scene changes and then we'll wrap it up. I promise. I know you're thinking we're only halfway through these verses. It's okay. We're going to read through uh, part. We're going to make it. So the, the three lives, or really five lives, they're brought together uh, for, for three months. That's, that's kind of the scene change. So verse 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And so we're not exactly sure when the baby uh, was conceived in her, whether it was before or after she left Nazareth, we're not told. But whatever the case, she seems to have wasted no time after the angel's announcement. And so uh, the journey would have been about 75 miles or so. So a few days journey for her to, to travel to where um, Zechariah and Elizabeth were. Verse 40, verse 40. It's beautiful. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that in a moment. But what, what a beautiful picture. Shalom, Elizabeth. And, and Elizabeth's face lights up and little John jumps in her womb. I mean, John is already doing the work that God has called him to do of pointing to Jesus. He's pointing to Messiah. And so being filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth, verse 42, exclaimed with a loud cry. She doesn't care who hears her. I mean, again, to be inside is basically to be outside in this culture. And so everybody's hearing her around. 
Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in the womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so, Elizabeth pronounces this blessing upon Mary and upon her child. I mean, she's, she's Mary's much older cousin. I think I said Anne earlier. But she's it's like an older cousin, this godly woman, faithful to the Lord through years of barrenness. But she's not bitter about Mary's pregnancy. Not at all. She is humbled that Mary, the mother of her Lord, would come to visit her. And so Mary responds. What does she say? Not, oh, thanks, Aunt Liz. This is that's great. I'm just, I'm just. It's pretty neat that I get to carry God's son. And, and uh, no, what does she do? She exalts the Lord with Elizabeth. She just breaks forth in song. She, she's not, she's not showing yet. There are no proofs. There's no pregnancy tests that she could go down to CVS and buy and to confirm that what the angel said actually happened. She, she may not even have have conceived yet, but she believes that what. What God has spoken through Gabriel was trustworthy and was true. And, I, and again, I'm, I'm not sure if Mary thought about this as she was making the, the journey there, the 75 miles, or if she was kind of writing this song in her, in, her, in her heart and in her head, or if she just burst forth spontaneously and this is what comes out of her lips. It doesn't really matter. The Holy Spirit's at work in her and praise just comes gushing out. And her song of praise, as you look through there, look at it, it's, it's just oozing with Scripture. Dripping with these Old Testament allusions and, and references. And it, it's not so much direct quotations, but it's, it, it's just this, it's reflective of this deep, general knowledge of the Scriptures. I mean, she's not, she's not just stringing along Bible cliches and little, little nuggets. She, she's, she's demonstrating this thorough and profound understanding of God's Word. She's a theologian. Not, not just the words of the Bible, but again, the theology of the Bible. And she, she has this deep awareness of God as He's revealed Himself in Scripture. And so you just look at all the cross-references in your Bible. And I mean, it gets so many Old Testament allusions. Verse 46. So this is, she, she, Elizabeth uh, gives this, pronounces this blessing and Mary immediately responds, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So from the depths of her soul, the, the depths of the core of her being, she, she's rejoicing in God, her Savior. She's not sinless. She's not perfect. She, she like all of us, is in desperate need of a Savior. She, she, she knows she's a sinner. Only sinners need a Savior. And so her Savior, however much she comprehended this or not at this time, her Savior was in her womb. Listen, you and I need a Savior because we are lost. We are alienated from God because of our sin. We, we don't just need a little boost from God to get things in order, to get things right. We, we, don't, we don't just need a few tips on kind of how to clean our act up. We, we don't just need some principles so that we can win in life. 
We need what Mary needed. We need a Savior. We're hopelessly lost unless God in His power intervenes to rescue us. We need a deliverer, a Savior. And we have that in Jesus, just as Mary did. Verse 48, she continues, For He has looked on the humble state, a state of His servant. She's not proud, her head's not held high. He picked me, you know. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That doesn't mean they will hail Mary. That means that they will see her life as a trophy of God's grace. He showed favor to her. She will be called blessed. Verse 49, For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. You see, she's not even just focused upon her baby, like, I get to have a child, and he's going to be a special child. No, this child she have will have will be the Messiah of his people. God's mercy to generation after generation after generation, his mercy to us. We're included there. Verse 51, and he, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. I mean, there's just so much here. I mean, this could be a series in itself. But His mercy, God's mercy is a sovereign mercy. He didn't choose Israel as we know because they were greater in number, because they were, they were better than the other nations, more righteous than the other nations. It was simply God's sovereign, sovereign love set upon them. The scripture says he, he loved them because He loved them. And his, his mercy is a sovereign mercy, but it's also a covenant mercy. He's faithful to all His promises, including His promise to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12. So he's, it's this covenant, sovereign mercy. And then verse 56. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. And then we have this last little scene change here. <clears throat> and then we'll be done. So the time comes for John to be born, verse 57. So it's an exciting day. You can imagine especially for Zechariah. Okay, especially for Elizabeth, but also Zechariah. Because not only is he going to have a son, but he might also now be able to speak again. And verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown a great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. All that stigma of childlessness, it's gone. Lord showed mercy to her, but that's it's way more than that, even though the neighbors don't recognize it. And on the eighth day, verse 59, of the eighth day of his life, they came to circumcise the child. And so this would be when they named the baby too, and that's when we have some confusion that kind of breaks out and in, in the, all the excitement here. And so the family, the friends, the neighbors, the worshipers, they're all gathered there, people that know Zechariah and Elizabeth, and everyone assumes he's going to be called Zechariah Jr., and that's just that's a given. I mean, here they've been barren for all these years. God gives them a son. Oh, there's no question what his name's going to be. The Lord remembers. So verse 59 continues, and, and they would have called him Zechariah. 
because that's what everybody would have done after his father. But Elizabeth insists for 60, no, he shall be called John. Verse 61, and they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they think, Elizabeth, I know you've been through a lot today. You must be a little delusional. You've got it. You must have it wrong. Uh, so they, they make signs to Zechariah, and they're trying, however they make signs, I don't understand if they're writing it, but whatever. But he, they, they're making signs to Zechariah, inquiring, verse 62, what he wanted him to be called. All right, Elizabeth, you be quiet. Zechariah, what do you want him to be called? However they're making signs to him. Verse 63, and he, Zechariah, asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And so, and here, here at the time, at the very moment, his disciplinary muting, it ends. And his ears are opened, and his tongue is loosed. Now you think about it. Zechariah has been unable to speak, and apparently unable to hear, for the last nine months. How has he handled that? How would you handle that? What's he been doing? Has he been wallowing in self-pity, despairing, sitting at home watching you know, Netflix for you know, days on end, that kind of thing? Apparently not. The very moment his tongue is loosed, he opens his mouth and begins praising God. He doesn't yell, Oh, I'm so happy I can talk again. Let me tell you all these. I love you, Elizabeth, and 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 I, I'm a dad. I mean, he doesn't shout any of those things. He he opens his mouth. Or his mouth is open. Verse sixty-four. His tongue is loose, and he spoke, blessing God. I mean, the only explanation for that response is that he had spent those nine long months contemplating the promises of God. He had he'd been storing up these thoughts of praise in his heart and his mind for these nine months of silence and the, and the moment his vocal abilities are restored he just bursts forth in adoration of God verse 65 and fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him and then we have this big birth announcement. And that's where we'll end. Not just giving John's weight and length and that kind of thing. This is, this is much bigger. I mean, listen to Zechariah's announcement here. It's not, it doesn't sound very cute. Honestly, it doesn't sound very New Testament-like. It doesn't sound like the Christmas carols we sing. It doesn't, it's not really even about his son. It's about His Savior. It's about His Messiah. Verse 67, and we're just going to read. And His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, 
the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. He's blessing the Lord, praising God for this Messiah who's come. And then verse 76, I don't doubt, looking tenderly and hopefully at His newborn son, John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What a... What a what a, a statement. Verse 80, this concluding comment, and the child grew and became strong in the spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Some 30 years later. I know we can read it in a sentence and then it just happens, but 30 years. God's not in a hurry. He's doing what He promised. And it will come to pass. Well, we will see the, the, the culmination of this, which is really the beginning, uh, not the end, of and next week in Luke chapter 2. But when, 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 we, when we unwrap Christmas, we realize it's not sentimental, it's theological. Um, we, we, it's, we see that it's not about self-improvement, it's about the Savior. Jesus. I mean, even before he's even before he's born, Jesus is the leading character in the story. Jesus is greater than John or anybody, anything else in the story. The Bible doesn't exalt Zechariah. We never hear from again from him again after this. He, he the Bible doesn't hail Mary. The Bible exalts and he draws it and it draws attention to Jesus Christ. How is that done here? Why am I saying that? Even the blameless ones, the righteous ones, the ones who walk in the commandments of God, the ones, even these ones in the story, they need a righteous Redeemer. They need, quote, forgiveness for their sins. They can never be righteous enough on their own. The message is not be like believing Mary instead of doubting Zechariah. That's not the message of this chapter. The message is look to the Messiah. Look to Jesus. Trust in Him alone. I mean, you you got Scrooge, you got the Grinch, you got Charlie Brown, you got all these things. These, these messengers of change, but their gospel message, quote, gospel message, it's not complete. Turn away from doing wrong. Change. Be better. You can't be generous enough or selfless enough or kind enough or, or giving enough to earn God's approval. You can't. The most loving thing I could do this morning is, is to tell you that it is impossible for you to have eternal life and enter God's heaven. It's impossible. You can never be good enough on your own. That, but that's only half of the loving truth, thankfully. 
while it's impossible for us to be saved on our own, with God, the text says in verse 37, all things are possible. Our salvation is only possible because Jesus came. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it concisely this way, we are, we are not saved by teaching, we are not saved by ideas, we are saved by the fact that the Son of God came into this world, had a literal physical body, was born of the Virgin Mary, died upon the cross, was buried in the grave, conquered death, bursting asunder its bands, rose triumphant, and ascended unto God, and is seated now at God's right hand. Thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift. This is, this is our hope. We look to Jesus. Jesus accomplished for us what we could never accomplish ourselves. You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. I mean, to heavy-laden sinners, there is no sweeter name than the name of Jesus. The Lord is salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You. We thank You that Christ has come. We thank You that our Savior has been born. Our Savior lived the perfect life that You sent Him to live. And He died the death that You, you, you uh, consigned to Him in our place on the cross. And we thank You that He rose and reigns now and will be returning. We thank You. I pray that You would help us over the coming days and weeks as we celebrate Christmas and as families, as a church, and, 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 and on our own, that we would, we would unwrap it and see the, the simple simplicity of Christ and what You came to do. You, were, you, you came as the Son of God here born to bleed for us. So as we sing those these glorious truths now fill our hearts with joy. This is this is one of the gifts that you give us. And is is you've you've intended to bring us joy, glad tidings of great joy. And so may we may we sing now with joy as we rehearse these truths. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.